Hello and welcome to episode 29 of the, I guess that's why they call it the Elton John podcast podcast. Today we're turning to Elton's record label, Rocket Records, to tell the story of its top 15 highest charting singles in the UK that don't include Elton. That means that there's quite a bit of kiki on here. The episode also features an interview with Doug Sanders from the Lambrettas. Along with Kiki, the Lambrettas were a huge part of Rocket's fairly limited success story. At the end of the episode, I'll give a rare outing to an Elton John Gary Osborne composition that found its way onto a Rocket 12-inch that was released in 1988. I started to tell the history of Rocket Records in episode 17, the second part of the Davy Johnson biography, because of course the label was dreamed up at the Chateau during the recording of Don't Shoot Me as a means to get Davy's album recorded and released. I played some of Elton's Old Grey Whistle Test interview from the 20th of February 1973 in that episode. Here's a bit more. Well, we've had an amazing response. We put a full-page advertisement in one of the leading musical weeklies, and uh, we had a good response from that. We've listened to every single thing that had come in, and we still get loads of tapes every day. And we found a couple of people from just people sending in tapes, which is very encouraging. Mm. I think what, the musical standards have gone up a little bit. What about what's going to happen in terms of recording freedom? Because so many people say that they are inhibited by, by record labels and, and just the amount of time, for example, that one gets in. No, well, that, that's the reason why we set it up. The whole reason for starting a record label was to get away from the, well, you must record an album in 15 hours type syndrome. And also, we give our, most of our artists get at least 10% record royalties, which is very, very high. Mm. Um, that's another one of the reasons. And uh, like David Johnson, for example, has been making his album. <laughs> Dave, if you're listening, hurry up. Uh, <laughs> has been making his album since last June. I know he's been touring with me, but he's. I mean, there's no real limit on to what people can do if, if we're behind them. For example, we, there's a young guy came in this week who's 18 years old. He plays the piano, uh, and he, we listened to his songs, and we thought, well, they're not very good. And then we sat down and said, well, was I writing very good songs when I was 18? And I said, well, I wasn't writing any songs when I was 18. <laughs> and he hadn't ever listened to any records, so we gave him some records to listen to. And we said, listen, go away for six months. We'll give you wages every week for six months and come back and see us in six months. That's what we're looking for, you know? Because mm. um, I know how hard it was when I tried to get a publishing. It's such a, a hard thing. And For example, Long Dancer, uh, average age are about 19 or 20. And they've written, this, their first album is going to be good. It's not going to be great. But then my first album, nobody's first album is usually great unless they're a genius. Uh, <laughs> And we, you know, that's not the point in signing people that are sort of, you've got to have potential. And, and, and the point of starting the record company was to encourage people who've got that spark of potential to sort of encourage them on, onwards because I, I needed that when I signed off and I, I really didn't get it half the time. Elton has been quoted as saying, I always wanted to start my own record company. Even as a kid, when I was playing my records, I'd be looking at the label spinning round and dreaming of having my own company. So the dream team that they put together to look after the label was Elton, Bernie and Gus on the creative side, Steve Brown as the general day-to-day -day manager up until 1974 when he left, and John Reed, who was Mr. Business. They cited their office in Soho in Wardour Street, 
plonking down a mahogany conference table in the boardroom and surrounding it with a dozen leather swivel chairs and a single huge wicker peacock chair throne type affair for Elton. This episode is all about hit singles, so a lot of the early history of the label, Davies' album, Stackridge, Long Dancer, Solution, aren't going to crop up today. They were essentially album artists. Definitely not cropping up today are some of the other artists that Rocket was offered but turned down. That list includes Queen, Cockney Rebel and 10cc. Apparently they all wanted advances that were too big for Elton and the team to stomach. Some of this information comes from the David DeCuto biography, by the way. My favourite Rocket-related fact that I got from there was the fact that the picture of Elton on the cover of the picture sleeve for Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting, the one where he's in a checked shirt swigging champagne from the bottle, that was taken during the record company launch. Um, For that launch, the label staff, their friends, the bands and the media all got on a train at Paddington Station and parted their way up to the chocolate box village of Morton in the March. I'm not sure what they did to deserve that. Um, Up in the hills of Gloucestershire, uh, where they were met by a brass band. Elton obviously made the most of his day trip. Plenty of other Rocket artists aren't going to feature in this episode either, because they didn't actually have any hits. That includes Nigel Olsen, although there'll be an episode for him soon to make up for it. Colin Blunstone didn't have any hit singles on Rocket either. Um, This is a UK-centric episode. The artists who had hits on Rocket in America aren't going to be here either. That includes the Hudson Brothers, who made the American Top 30 in 1975, and Neil Sedaka. It was his success in Europe on Polydor that made it possible for Elton to sign him up in the US only, leading to two number one singles, Laughter in the Rain and Bad Blood, which of course featured Elton on backing vocals. I'm sure that song is going to come up here at some point, one way or another. For the same reason, I can't find a way to include the two UK hits that Cliff Richard had in this period because they came out on RCA in the UK. Rocket essentially just pushed his cause for him in the US. Those hits were pretty huge as well, including the wonderful Devil Woman, which made the top 10 on both sides of the Atlantic. I saw the cat at my door So I came into you, sweet lady Answering your mystical call Crystal ball on the table I couldn't resist it. What a great sound in that intro. If you happen to have seen the moment when this track rears its head in the Tonya Harding biopic, I, Tonya, well, it's got to be the coolest Cliff Richard-related bit of cinema ever. Certainly cooler than Summer Holiday. Well, so much for what's not in the episode. Let's get started with that top 15, with a track that didn't even make it into the top 75 in the UK. That's how few 
hits Rocket had here. Number 15 represents a bit of artistic license from me. It's my nod to Johnny Warman and his single Screaming Jets, which came out in 1981, featuring Peter Gabriel on backing vocals. Johnny Warman came to Rocket after being signed to Ringo Starr's label Ringo Records. Ringo managed to bring out one single for Johnny before they ceased trading. Johnny eventually released two albums of quite excellent music on Rocket, none of it successful. This track was a particularly strong one. He went on to write a song with Gary Osborne, incidentally. Here is one that just about charted, Randy Edelman's Nobody Made Me, which made number 60 in the UK chart in 1982, so number 14 in our chart. No great story here and a pretty insipid recording. Randy was an American musician who'd released several albums in the 1970s on Arista and RCA. His solitary rocket album On Time came out in 1982. He would later on be known for his film music. Number 13, we're getting through these. Number 13 is Dramatis. They were... Gary Newman's backing band until Newman retired for about a week in 1981 and they were somehow forced to go it alone. Their single I Can See Her Now made number 57 in 1982.
this is some fairly basic electropop, very much of its era. They actually had a bigger single than this, Love Needs No Disguise, made number 33. But that was on Beggar's Banquet, not Rocket, because that song featured Gary Newman on vocals, and that was his label. Another ouch for Rocket there. Number 12 in our chart represents the first appearance of the Lambrettas. As I said, I was lucky enough to be able to speak to Doug Sanders, the lead singer, who's been with the band for 40 years. And we talked a great deal about their music and their time at Rocket. This comes from the middle of our discussion. Though. We're talking about the fact that they were basically the only act to have had any hits for Rocket around the turn of the 80s. You must have kind of felt a little bit like you were saving the label. You must have been seen as saviours a little bit. Well, I think we were from a credibility point of exactly, view. Exactly, yeah. I, I, to be absolutely brutally honest, I think probably they, you know, they were very good and they were nice people and they looked after us and I think they tried to do everything right, but I don't think they had a great amount of credibility. No. And I think, if anything, um, our credibility suffered as a result of them <laughs> and theirs probably went up as a result of us. <laughs> you had some... Three pretty decent hits, didn't you? Including the one yeah. where the sleeves all had to get trashed because you you infringed on the Sun's trademark copyright or so something. So they reckoned, yeah. Did anyone the label think that calling a song page three was a risk? Because they can't copyright that. Well, I, I, to be honest, um, the song was just called page three. There was no no thought went into it one way or the other, and it was just it was a bit of a wry look at it. To yeah. be fair, but. Um, you know, the um, I think once it sort of got mentioned once, I think the whole thing was blown up for purpose. I think it was stirred up, and I think Rocket was just as happy about it. Oh, right, OK. It's one of them, was it? Yeah, it was like, oh, hang on a minute, this is a bit of free press. It might cost us a few quid, but... <laughs> and it didn't hurt the song. Did you get on Top of the Pops for that one, or did, they, did you not get invited? Well... Funnily enough, yeah, we did, and as soon as when we did, we we recorded it, and they went on strike, oh. so it never got aired. <laughs> as we'll hear later on in the episode, he's not kidding about the credibility thing. Here's the song that we're discussing. There, renamed as "Another Day, Another Girl," it got to number forty-nine in the chart in nineteen eighty. Lively tune. The Lambretta stuff still sounds pretty great today. 
And there's loads more to come later on from Doug and his band. Number 11's a bit of a weird one. Lulu was on Rocket in 1978, releasing one album, which featured covers of I Don't Care and Nice and Slow, actually the only known version of that song until the Tom Bell EP came out. She also released two singles on Rocket in that era, neither of which troubled the charts. Of course, Elton and Lulu go way back, at least as far as A Song for Europe in 1969. Fast forward 30 years, 1999, and Lulu and Elton were label mates in the UK, both on Mercury. Of course, Elton um, nominally on Rocket. This is after her comeback at the hands of Gary Barlow with Relight My Fire. She'd apparently written, co-written, and recorded a whole album of dance music, but the label were refusing to release it. This is where it gets a little bit murky. It seems as though Elton might have stepped in with his checkbook and with his sway at Mercury to get the single Hurt Me So Bad released, because that's what happened. She popped up for one single on Rocket in 1999 before going back to Mercury the following year. She was basically the only non-Elton artist on Rocket at the time. Well, there was one American act called Jimmy's Chicken Shack. But apart from that, this was a real oddity. And she almost got into the top 40 as well. Number 42. You hurt me so bad. Hurt Me So Bad was a pretty good sound for Lulu in 1999, sort of like a down-tempo Spinning Around by Kylie. Difficult to get too excited about it, it's not really my thing. An album was in the air at the time um, with a brilliant title, Where the Poor Boys Dance, but it was cancelled when Lulu's next album came out on Mercury in 2002. It was a very different project, an album of duets called Together, which opens with an Elton duet, Teardrops, the same version as the version from Elton's duets album with Lulu's vocal in place of KD Lang's. Elton is actually down as executive producer for the whole project. So there's clearly a bit of a story to be told here, but I'll be damned if I know what it is. On to the top 10 then, and at 10 we see for the first time... The wonderful Kiki D, or Kinky D, as she was apparently going to be known before a change of heart towards the beginning of her career. Her single from 1975, How Glad I Am, made number 33 in the UK charts. My love has no beginning, my love has no end. No front, no back. My love won't bend, I'm in the middle. I'm lost in a spin. 
This was the follow-up to I've Got the Music in Me, which will pop up later. Intriguingly, this was the second time that Kiki had covered this song. She originally recorded it and released it as a single in 1964. This attempt comes from the I've Got the Music in Me album sessions. So it's Roger Pope on drums. He's metronomic here. Phil Curtis is on bass. Bias Boschel on piano. Joe Partridge on guitar and it's produced by Gus. This is a pretty decent song. I keep worrying it's going to break into Day Tripper by the Beatles every now and again. It's a great bluesy vocal from Kiki as ever. This is the first of a run of three Kiki songs in our chart. Here she is at hour number nine with a later single, the Bias Boschel penned First Thing in the Morning which reached 32 in the UK chart in 1977 when it was picked out from her third album on Rocket, entitled Kiki D. That was a long old gap between 1974's I've Got the Music in Me and 1977's Kiki D. The reason being that there was a scrapped album in between that Kiki and the label weren't happy with. This was 1976's Cage the Songbird, which eventually came out in 2008. The sessions for that scrapped album were started in 1975 in Los Angeles with the producer Robert Appair, who'd worked with Sadaka and Nigel Olsen for Rocket. Elton had shut down Kiki's band by that point and absorbed them into his own, so Kiki was working with some unfamiliar musicians. This means that Kiki was the first person to record Cage the Songbird way before Elton did it. The recordings didn't cut it, apparently. They're certainly very sparse in comparison to what came after. There'll be loads of clarifying information about this period and stories behind the songs in the upcoming box set, Kiki D, The Rocket Years. It's a five CD box set and book. It's coming out this month, end of this month. Um, There's an exclusive signed version of the set to be had on Amazon at the moment, at least here in the UK. Um, just £35.99. Hopefully it's going to be a decent transfer from, from the original tapes, you never know. 
There's no information about what we're dealing with on that front with this box set. So anyway, this song, First Thing in the Morning, was released in 1977 and got to number 32. The album this came from, Kiki D, was produced by Elton and Clive again, and it featured David Johnston, Steve Holly, Ray Cooper and James Newton Howard throughout, as well as Dee Murray on some tracks, but not this one. I wonder how that worked out between Elton and Dee. The song was originally recorded for the shelved album, but this is the superior version, much more lush and fleshed out with its Gene Page arrangement. The B-side was the Elton John Bernie Taupin song, actually credited as Tripe and Onions, called The Man Who Loved to Dance. That will come up in a forthcoming The Songs They Gave Away episode. More Kiki now. Back to her second Rocket album in 1974. Number eight in our chart is the title track, I've Got the Music in Me, which topped out at number 19 in the UK charts. Breathless groove behind her, courtesy Roger Pope, Phil Curtis, Joe Partridge and Bias Boschel. The album was produced by Gus, he's down on tambourine, along with Jeff Titmus, Clive Franks and Stuart Epps sing backing vocals on the album. The liner notes also feature Del Newman, BJ Cole, Kay Garner, Irene Chanter, Barry St. John, some very familiar names to Elton John obsessives. It sounds like unbelievable fun was had recording this album. They did it at Electric Lady Studios in New York City. Apparently the mood was lightened still further when Elton appeared nude 
streaking across the live room of the studio, apparently, to give Kiki a bit of confidence in herself. Not sure exactly how that's going to have helped, but still, the single charted even higher in the US than the UK, number 12 over there, her only hit um, in the US, apart from Don't Go Breaking My Heart. Moving on, number seven is Blue, the Scottish band, not the English boy band, based around Hugh Nicholson, ex of Marmalade. Here's Hugh talking to Chris White about his days at Rocket. And then you came to the attentions of Alton John and Rocket Records who signed you. So sure. how did the former Rage Dwight come across Blue? It was um, one of his... Uh, one of the guys, one of the um, road managers had, had seen us perform and told Elton about us. And Elton and John Reed turned up at a gig in London and saw us and um, were interested in signing us for the Rocket Record Company, which was really exciting. It was a good time, great time. And Elton, in good fact, time. produced a new album. That's right, another night time flight. That's right, another night time flight. He played in some of the tracks uh, too. He produced right. and he played yeah. in some of the tracks great too. Fun. Right, yeah. what was he like to work with in the studio? What was he like to work with in the studio? An excellent musician. An excellent musician. A great sense of humour. A great sense and, of humour. Um, and all we got in really well with and, um, dedicated we got in really well with them. Dedicated well. to music. Mm. Quite daunting at first. Well. Quite daunting but, um, at first. Once the music but, um, was playing, he was... was once no the music problem. was playing, he was... It was no problem. Clearly some very vivid memories for Hugh there. Here's that single then. It got to number 18 in 1977 and it's called Gonna Capture Your Heart. Gonna take my soul to town Gonna set my spirit free Gonna capture your heart Right from the start You belong to me Gonna take my soul to town Gonna set my spirit free Gonna capture your heart Right from the start songs from the Blue Album feature Regit Buntervan on piano. That's a play on Billy Bunter, Budget Rentervan and Reg, Reg Dwight. So it's Elton, of course, on piano. Apparently not. he's not on this one, but it sounds like him to me. I, I like this tune. It goes from hymn-like simplicity in the verse into a rousing ELO like chorus i'm impressed with the production as well it's got a fairly authentic jeff lynn vibe blue released one more album on rocket a couple of years later also partially produced by elton and clive 
but this was their only hit. One more top 20 hit than most of us, though, it has to be said, so well done, Hugh. The one other artist who had a hit on Rocket between 1978 and 1980, who wasn't the Lab was Judy Zook. She's number six in our chart with Stay With Me Till Dawn, which charted at number 16 in who of course co-wrote Give Me the Love with Elton around this time, 1979, by correspondence, not in person, released her album Welcome to the Cruise on Rocket that same year. Um, It's got a really distinctive cover done by the Hypnosis Studio. This track was her only hit single. It featured a Paul Buckmaster string arrangement. She was a successful album artist, Uh, Three Rocket albums charted at number 14, then number 7, and then number 17. Judy had apparently approached Rocket early on, and they liked what they heard, and she promised to bring them more music, but she never came back. She had another single with another label. She did come back with a bunch of songs that she'd written with her collaborator, Mike Paxman, and she got the contract. Top five. Time for more Kiki. In 1976, after the success of Don't Go Breaking My Heart and without another album to promote, they returned to the vaults and put together an EP of three older singles headed up with this song from the first Rocket album, Loving and Free. This EP found its way to number 13 in the UK chart. Bound, I am bound Like the knots in a string Eager to be where my life can begin Out of the shadow And into the sun 
Kiki got to have a hit with a song of her own. Her first single on Rocket in 1973 from this album had been the wonderful Elton Burney song Lonnie and Josie, backed with The Last Good Man in My Life. The day after the Rocket Records launch, Elton was quoted as saying, we're trying to write a special song for Kiki. We've never done that for anybody else to try to get her off the ground, to try to get her publicity and everything. Bernie's task is really hard because he's got to write one as a girl so he slips into Maxine's dresses every morning. As good as Lonnie and Josie was, it wasn't the hit that they were hoping for. By the way, there's a suggestion that those two tracks and Super Cool as well were started with Elton's band at the Chateau with Gus producing, although there's no evidence of anything like that in the liner notes which state very clearly that Elton and Clive produced the album. It does have a chateau sound, though. Dean Murray's on every track, so he's on this song, Loving a Free. It's a subtle little number. Um, he's the only Elton John band member on here. Track number four is Kiki as well. It's from the same sessions. This is the stunning Amoureuse. Lots of people's first experience of Kiki. This was released in 1973 as the second single from the album and it climbed to number 13 in the UK charts. The same position as Loving and Free, but it stuck around five weeks longer. Strands of light upon a bedroom floor Change the night through an open
I've always loved this tune. The original recording, which was from 1972 by Véronique Sanson, who wrote it, was produced by Michel Berger. The lyric was translated by Gary Osborne, one of a couple of French songs that he tackled in that era. He kept the choruses roughly the same. The line, I feel the rainfall of another planet, comes straight from the original, for example. But he changed the verses. Sanson's original is more subtle. It's about knowing that you're going to be in trouble with your parents when you get home after staying out all night with a guy. Gary's got the same story, but he's turned the sexuality factor right up. It's quite clear um, about what Kiki's singing here. Sanson herself recorded Gary's English lyric in September 1972 before Kiki's version, which was recorded in April 73 at the suggestion of Tony King, vice president of Rocket. It's not even about the lyric, though. She could hum it and there still wouldn't be any doubt as to what it was about. What a melody. Time to say goodbye to Kiki and hello again to Doug from the Lambrettas because they take up the next two places in our chart. Here's Doug giving me a bit of background about the early days of the band and how they came to the attention of Rocket. When you were starting to forge your direction, there, there wasn't really a mod revival, was there? No, there wasn't a mod revival at all. And, and it's, it's quite funny because we... Over the, not so much now, but um, there, there have been times in the past where we sort of had a bit of stick for being called the Lambrettas and saying, you know, that's such an obvious name. It is, isn't it? You know, it kind of comes across like bandwagon riding extraordinaire. Exactly, <laughs> and I do under, I totally understand that. The point being, though, when we when we started, there was about like a, it was really underground, and there was like about a dozen mods in Brighton, and we thought, well, the best way to you know, sort of get the message out is to be as obvious as possible. Yeah. Obviously not realising there was going to be some sort of mod revival. When did Quadrophenia come out? I actually don't know. I think that, well, that was 79. So you, yeah, you were, you were, you were right on, you were ready to go, weren't you? Yeah, well, we were sort of going then because yeah. I, I can remember um, we were actually playing, there's a, there's a little gig, it's no longer there, in Brighton called the Alhambra and all the bands used to play there because mm. <laughs> it was they used to be able to get you to play there for nothing <laughs> and um, I remember when the uh, when it opened Quadrophenia in um, in Brighton for the you know the first time we um, we were playing at the Alhambra and we got there and there was like nobody there and then as soon as the cinema chucked out it oh, right. suddenly filled up within about five minutes <laughs> but it was like you couldn't buy the, you know, it hadn't sort of like, it sort of hadn't hit the high street. So, we, you know, we, we used to sort of go around all the charity shops trying to find the clothes. Can you still fit into anything from that era? Well, I probably could at a real squeeze. I've got a couple mm. of things. My dad was, um, he, he's no longer, he's not been around for a long time. Mm. He, he was friendly with the Wattses, which is Charlie from the Rolling Stones. Okay, the yeah. And so I've got a shirt that used to be Mick Jaggers. And I can just about fit into that. And then that was from the 60s. And I, 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 somewhere I got a, a suit that was Charlie's, like a, a real three-button 60s sort of fairly... He was super thin. slim, wasn't he? Yeah. And I used to fit into that easy, but I don't know, I don't know where that's 
you know, currently is oh. probably borrowed. Do, do you know? I mean, sometimes these things are lost in confusion. But do you know how you came to the attention of Rocket? Well, yeah, sort of. Okay, they had they put out this. They they were going to do an album. Um, the idea was to invest in some new bands, new talent. Yeah. So they had this. Um, they had this idea of an album, which was um, a, it was a telephone number. And it was um, called four nine nine two one three nine. Okay. And and it was named that, and that was the phone number you phoned to say, "Hi, we're such and such, blah blah blah. Can we send you a demo?" That's quite a nice little uh, hook, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And so loads, loads of um, bands sent into that to get a, you know, to get a song on this album. I think twelve that they wanted twelve bands. Mm. I don't know how many applicants they had, loads, I think. But um, mm. anyway, they chose 11, um, but we were quite lucky because we didn't even ask. We didn't apply for it. We didn't know anything about it, but I think oh. they'd sent some A&R people to a gig of ours. Oh, okay. And they, oh, they, they approached busy us. They were busy they? They were busy. Yeah, yeah. Did anything come of the other 11 then? I'll have to have a look into that. I don't think they did, no. A couple of them were sort of okay bands, but mm. I don't think any of them ever did anything. And we... Um, and that was your song, Poison Ivy, not your song, but uh, the it song. It was Go Poison. Steady, the track was Oh, was Go it? Steady, oh, was it? Yeah, okay, all right. All which right. was the very first song. And we recorded that because um, I think they were interested in us just before this um, 499 album came mm-hmm. out. And we'd, um, we went into this studio, studio garage, which it really was garage, um, literally. And uh, that, that was Peter Waterman because he used to work for them. Yeah, I, don't know if you knew yeah I did know that, um, but it, it was way before he ever saw a lot of success. Yeah, yeah it was long before Stock Aitken and Warhol, yeah. <laughs> but he was always like full of these brilliant ideas. I've got this fantastic idea, boys. And it's like, you know, anyway, we went in the studio with him and we recorded Go Steady and a couple of other tracks. Yeah. And the, the idea was, um, you know, well, that was going to be put out as a single, which it, which it was with a, an A-side and a double B-side. and But then they decided that this A-side was going to go on this 499 album. Their first single didn't get into the top 75, though, so we won't feature it here. Number three in our chart is the song Dance, which made number 12 in 1980. This one was written by Jez from the band, who's unfortunately no longer with us. It's extremely catchy. It's up to you. Say yes and it's all right. Too much too soon. Do you want to stay the night? If you want to, it's all right. You've had enough. And you want to be alone. Okay, that's rough. If you want, I'll walk you home. Let's go back to Doug for a bit. Your your deal kept getting updated, didn't it? it, it, it you started off with just a, a single or a couple of singles, and then by the end, you ended up with two albums on the label, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. It, it, it started off as, um, uh, a, I think, a single, and then I think they were going to just um, maybe do an album and a couple of singles, and then it ended up as a sort of 
when we did sign it, finally I think it was just a standard three-year deal, but obviously we've been there a while already, so yeah, so I guess it ended up about four years or so. The whole thing with Rocket was that it was supposed to provide a better deal than other labels would give uh, yeah. a, an artist. I wonder, you've not got much to compare with as to what it was like in no. that era, because you only got one deal in that era. Yeah, it, quite. But what do you reckon? Do you think they were fair? I think they were pretty fair, because, you know, from what I've seen from other musicians and bands and, you know, people I still know now that were mm. around then, uh, obviously it's very different now, but um, I think they were pretty fair. I mean, I think they were there to make money like any company, yeah. but I think their percentages were as fair as anybody's, and they were, you know, they did, they spent a lot of money on us for, for you know, trying to promote us and... Just be, just be nice to us, I think, in general. <laughs> so it was a nice environment to be around. It was quite sort of a family environment in a way. It was, you know, they were, they were, you know, they really took us under their wing. Okay, so now here's Doug and me talking about Pete Waterman, um, and leading into talking about their biggest hit, which was a cover of the Lieber Stoller song "Poison Ivy." Pete didn't. Apart from being a, a, a directing you in terms of material, he didn't produce you again, did he? No, not after that very first first one. He sounds like a really funny guy, Pete. Yeah, he's all right actually. He was he was pretty good with us. Yeah. I mean, he's like he's he's the eternal enthusiast. I've seen him go on about trains. Yeah, well, there yeah, you go then. <laughs> I rest my case. <laughs> Yeah, I bet he could probably he could drone. I imagine. He yeah, has, he I mean, he, he could pretty. He, you know, he, he could talk you into pretty much anything. You know. <laughs> so, um, but he was right about poison ivy, wasn't he? He was right about poison ivy, and it was because um, when when we, you know, obviously we had our own material, and when it was first suggested, we thought, oh, here we go. You know, it sounds like a naff idea, mm. and then. We practiced it, and I, uh, uh, I'm afraid it was me that was responsible for the scar rhythm. Yeah. Um, and then it sort of made it, it did breed a bit of new life into it, to be fair, doing that. Yeah. And then, I guess it, it did, you know, it did start sounding okay then, so we warmed to the idea, but we weren't too keen on it at first, but it did work out all right in the end, so. Yeah. track is number two on our chart, having made the top ten in 1980, number seven to be exact. Back to Doug, I've just asked him what Elton thought of their music and their success. Well, I think he, he, he really liked it. I think he was always very supportive. He used to, um, I, don't know, I don't know how old you are, but... I'm um, 41 now, just turned. Okay, so you probably don't even remember telegrams. <laughs> no, well, I know, I know all about them, but yeah. No, never yeah, okay, one. so he sent us telegrams. So, like, we were, when we very, very first did Top of the Pops, he, um, he, he sent us a telegram and champagne and stuff. 
And I think the first telegram said uh, something like, it, it doesn't do to outdo the governor. Because yeah. he, he had a single out and we were higher than him in the charts. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a great time for Elton, that sort of era. No, it wasn't. I mean, his credibility taking a massive hit with Victim of Love as well as Disco yeah. album. So, yeah. yeah, it did. It, I think, it, I don't know what it was like in the States, but... You know, he, that, that credibility thing in this country is a bit silly, really. And it, it, that, yeah, I think a lot of people went through a bad patch then, didn't they? Yes, yes. No one knew who they were or what they wanted to be or do. Yeah, exactly. But um, no, I've got three or four telegrams in there because I keep most of the stuff if I can, you know. And uh, I've, I've got three or four telegrams that he sent us. But, um, oh, wonderful. Yeah, you know, we're all really, really nice and supportive and, uh, you know, and, and a few a few things that perhaps I shouldn't mention either. <laughs> oh, well, you feel free to mention them, but did he ever come to any of your gigs? Yeah, he, um, he, came, he didn't come to any gigs, but um, we did a, uh, he came to a charity football match, um, and we did, and there was, the, the son did this charity football, the son of all people. Oh. Um, <laughs> yeah, talk about, forgive you quickly. They did um, <laughs> a charity football match, and there were lots of different bands had... Um, you know, teams, and it was five a side, and mm. you were allowed to have the members of the band, or four members of the band, and you were allowed to have one professional footballer. Mm. Um, we had, there was us, and we had this guy called Stan Bowles, don't ask me who he played for, but okay. he was in Premier Division somewhere back then. And uh, and he was there, Elton was there watching that, because he's a bit of a football nut, I think. Is that down Brighton Way? Or is, no, is it, it was in Chelsea at Stamford oh, Bridge. was it? Lovely. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we played, um, the first team we played was, they were called Cozy Powell's Hammer. It's oh, correct. He wasn't, he wasn't there, was he? Yeah, Cozy Powell was in the team, yeah. Wow, I imagine him being a goalkeeper for some reason. I, don't know I can't I remember what, and there was him and like Jeff Beck and, you know, them sort of lads. Oh, were, wow. Uh, and that, um, and that, I think we drew with them. So then we went on again, and then we got beaten by the Baron Knights. Oh, the They had, like, three Scottish internationals on their team. So oh. they... Well, yeah, because there, there, there probably were, at some point, three Scottish internationals in the Baron Knights. There were that many of them. <laughs> but you never know. But Elton actually played with the Baron Knights. He, he did yeah. a session with them in 68. That's, that's oh, a, well. There's a little piece of... Elton trip. Oh, well, no wonder they beat us then. <laughs> yeah, it was fixed. <laughs> Come on, then, give us a silly memory of Elton. Do you have any silly memories of him? I can't. Um, silly. <laughs> no, I can. Uh, <laughs> the thing I was, the thing I omitted to say was on yeah. one of his telegrams he put at the bottom. I guess we were, you know, we were all sort of young lads then, and he put at the bottom, "Do any of you go?" Way! <laughs> still got the telegram, but uh, it was in good. It was in, you know, it was all done in the best possible taste. Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't think he was serious. Okay, I'm sorry. Sure I think it was. He was sort of sending himself up a bit. Yeah, I don't think it would be mixing business and pleasure. No, he wouldn't way. mix business with pleasure. No, <laughs> no, it was just because uh, you know. That's hilarious. I guess. Yeah. yeah. So he was just sort of. Taking the piss out of himself, really. I don't think you're going to get much more salacious than that on the, I guess that's why they call it the Elton John podcast podcast. Doug went on to tell me about what the band are up to these days. And then we're sort of writing to do some stuff for next year, but I don't know whether it's going to, we're going to be doing, we did an EP last year, that was all right. 
Um, I don't know whether we're going to do another EP soon or an album. We're, we're trying to debate that at the moment. Um, but I'm writing. Yeah. Uh, I've got some good stuff. And then next year we've got like um, the Great British Alternative Festival. I know that's in Minehead. And then we're playing with a band called The Chords somewhere, Morley. Um, there's a big sort of thing called Mods May Day on the 5th of May in London. Okay. It's an annual thing. And there's like a, it's an all-day thing with about seven, eight bands. So that's usually pretty good. Yeah, then the summer begins in earnest. Good for you. I'm glad you're busy. Um, and you, yeah. you kept it going and still writing original music. Can't yep. be bad, can it? That's what it's no. all about. I mean, I, I do, you know, I, I'm quite happy. All the while we're playing new stuff, I'm quite happy to, you know, when I go and see a band, I want to I see their back catalogue and I want to hear mm. the songs I know and love. But I also, I'm just as enthusiastic to hear their new stuff. And and I feel the same way about this band. I don't. I'm quite happy to play the songs that people want to hear, um, but so long as you know we get a chance to do some, hear some new stuff as well. Quite right. There's nothing worse than a stagnant set list full of oldies, is there? Hmm. At least one actively gigging musician doesn't agree. Those dates are all listed on the Lambrettas website, which is www.thelambrettas.co.uk. If you're in the UK, why not go out there and give them some support? The EP that Doug mentioned, called Go For It, is available to download in all the normal places. In the spirit of supporting bands who are bringing out new material, here's one of the tracks from there. It's the title track. No use dreaming of a better situation than you Can't rely on the good intent of man to do you Got a dose of dust and radiation All the same old blade from the same back stabbing hand Well I'm the chosen one of the seventh son of the seventh son Thank you so much to Doug for all the wonderful memories and for letting us know what the band are up to now. What an outstanding guy. The whole conversation was loads of fun. There were lots of other bits and pieces that I couldn't fit in here, but you can listen to the whole thing via a link in the episode description. We're nearly there now. It's just a small matter of announcing the most successful non-Elton John single in the UK on Rocket Records. This only just beat Poison Ivy. It made number six in the chart in 1981. It's Fred Wedlock. When you score with a chick in a disco bar Take her home in your hairy little car Then you find you went to school with her mom Pa, you're the oldest swinger in town When you won't look in a mirror in the light of day Swear you dyed it when your hair turns grey When you zip up your wranglers and your bellies in the way You're the oldest swinger in town Here you come and there you go White wheels, pops and a stereo But the engines clapped and the driver also Is the oldest swinger in town 
ignominious conclusion to our chart, I feel. Fred Wedlock, a former teacher, was a folkster, sort of West Coast Richard Digents. This song had already come out locally, self-released, and someone clearly saw potential in it. I'm not sure who that was at Rocket. They were sort of right and sort of very, very wrong. All that transfer of credibility from the Lambrettas to the label, all for nothing. And with that, we've reached the end of our chart. The label became a real ragtag of half-baked ideas as the 80s progressed, most of which had nothing to do with Elton or his team as we know it. We're going to end up with one of the weirdest artefacts from that era, a 12-inch single released in 1988 by Sylvia Griffin. Here's the A-side... This song, Love's A State of Mind, was produced by Chris Thomas and co-written, along with Griffin herself, by Rod Balkett, who was originally a member of Stackridge. He went on to write for Diana Ross and Cliff Richard. We've got some Elton John alumni on here, namely David Payton and Charlie Morgan. Does that style of slide guitar playing sound familiar to you? It should do. It's George Harrison. According to Simon Leng's biography, The Music of George Harrison, he got involved purely to repay a favour after Elton appeared on his album, Cloud Nine. It wasn't just any old project they gave him, though. They weren't just launching Sylvia Griffin's solo career. As a singer, she'd originally been in an interesting group called Kissing the Pink, but anyway. They were also launching Renata John, very soon to be Renata Blau again, as a record producer. Renata was friends with Sylvia, apparently. And although she didn't end up producing the lead track from the single, she is given credit for producing the 12 Inches bonus track. So what of that bonus track? It's called Lonely Heart, and it's written by Elton John and Gary Osborne. 
I wonder what vintage this song was. It could have been a late one, Leather Jackets era. Who knows? I have to say, I quite enjoy it. And I'm surprised it doesn't really circulate. I'll play it in full at the end of this episode. I'll bung it on my YouTube channel. Hopefully you'll enjoy it. Thanks to all of my correspondents and the reviewers on iTunes. Uh, Gary Knox, big fan 6778. Good years, that. Patrick 93010, Calligator 79, awesome Broader Collie. I think I've mentioned you before. It's a great name. Your comments and your reviews mean an awful lot to me. Email me if you've got any questions or observations. It's eltonpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks to John Schramm, who's been emailing me recently. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. In the meantime... Here's the quite awesome Lonely Heart.
Hallelujah.